Um, Joe Biden is fast approaching 100 days in office and he's been busy. Uh, his America Rescue Plan has already passed Congress with spending of $1.9 trillion in the pipeline. A further raft of stimulus measures, the American Jobs Plan promises $2 trillion in extra spending over the next few years. And there's likely to be more um, proposals around spending on childcare, health and education. But what is the economic thinking behind all of this? How will Biden be different to Trump in that regard? Is there any indication that America's economy can be pulled out of its long-term moribund state of relatively low growth and stagnating living standards? And where does all this leave America in terms of its place in the world? Now, before I introduce our speaker, I just want to say the Academy of Ideas has been determined that throughout this past year, while physical life has been locked down, that intellectual life must not be. We've worked all the way through without putting staff on furlough, relying on support from donations. So if you'd like to chip in with the price of a pint or even a large round, especially at London prices, uh, to support our work, please visit academyofideas.org.uk forward slash support. Um, I'm delighted we have um, James Matthews to introduce the discussion. Uh, James is a, um, uh, a New York-based management consultant and a former economic forecaster, as well as a commentator on the US economy and business. Uh, James will speak for about 20 minutes or so, um, and then we've got plenty of time for questions and discussion. So I am now going to uh, ask James to unmute. I'll put him on the spotlight. And the floor is yours, James. Great. Thanks, Rob. Hello, everyone. Glad you could make it uh, today. Um, and uh, really looking forward to this discussion. Um, let, I want to, in this introduction, try to give you, give all of us really a kind of common grounding, and as well as give you kind of my perspective on what I think is happening um, and what it, what it will mean for the U.S. economy, uh, as well as the world economy. My, my presentation is going to focus on the U.S. implications, but uh, I think in the discussion we can get more into the, the world as well. Um, what uh, we're going to talk about are so-called Bidenomics, is in the title. It's a little bit of an awkward term. Uh, uh, not as easy off the tongue, I suppose, as Reaganomics, but certainly better than a Obamanomics. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk about the economic principles uh, as well as economic policies of the Biden administration. Um, as Rob mentioned, uh, Biden entered the White House not that long ago. Uh, it was January 20th, uh, so um, less than three months ago. And But in that time, there's been a flurry of actions and proposals. Uh, he did campaign on a with an economic policy called Build Back Better, um, but it wasn't really emphasized in the uh, all that much relative to other, other things he campaigned on. And so a lot of people have been taken aback by the scale and speed of his proposals. Um, so yeah, I mean, just in terms of special initi initiatives, there's been, um, you know, totaling over 5 trillion. Uh, Rob mentioned the, American Rescue Plan, that's a kind of COVID relief plan, that was 1.9 trillion. He just announced the other day, 2.3 trillion for the American Jobs Plan, also known as the Infrastructure Plan. Uh, he's got another 1 trillion or plus due to be announced soon for childcare, healthcare. 
Um, and that's all comes up in, in, in addition to this is there's a regular budget, which was announced the other day that uh, starting in October, he's proposing an 8% uh, 8 increase in spending on just to the regular items. And this also comes on top of the pandemic relief last year that under Trump, which totaled 3.3 trillion. So we're really talking about over a two year period announcing about eight to 9 trillion in, in spending, although obviously all of it won't be spent immediately. This is more than a quarter of annual GDP. Um, it's much more stimulus in, 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 uh, than other major economies. The next highest is Japan, about 3 trillion. Of course, the US economy's larger than Japan's. Um, and, but the total package is, is one of the biggest reshapings of the US economy in decades. Uh, it's being talked comparably, comparably with like the New Deal, the wartime economy of the 1940s, the 1960s war and poverty, the space race, Vietnam. Um, and, uh, and I guess if you had to summarize, you know, it's the message is, is really a lot of it is around that uh, big government is back. Um, and, uh, you know, the kind of contrast is said with, with Reagan, you know, in the Reagan-Thatcher years, free market, but that Reagan cast a long shadow and that, you know, Bill Clinton, for instance, is famous, the statement, a statement, uh, State of the Union address was the era of big governments all over. And it's being presented as if Biden is, you know, completely reversing this. And it's now, it's the era of big government is, is here once again. Um, it will, uh, Biden does propose an increase in taxes, which will cover some something of these increases in spending, but um, debt is likely to rise significantly. Um, it's already at its highest level in the US since World War II. Uh, it's due to go up to 107% um, over the next decade or so. Um, and there's also, in terms of the discussion, a lot of concern about the risk of inflation. Uh, it's been 2 to 3%, fairly low for the past decade, but it's uh, been climbing since uh, its low point in May of last year. Uh, it went up uh, uh, almost a percentage point just this past month. Now, Biden and his team say, well, this is really necessary. It addresses COVID crisis. It addresses inequality, racial equity, and also addresses structural problems of the economy. And his advocates argue that the fears are overblown, that the, the debt can certainly be handled. Um, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, Powell, by the way, agrees with that. Um, they say inflation won't really be a problem. We'll see a uh, a brief increase, but won't be bad. And growth's going to take off, and we'll take care of any problems. Um, but uh, it definitely is a gamble um, that this will all work out. Um, an economist was quoted in the Wall Street Journal um, saying, "How does this shake out? Well, no one knows because no one has seen such an experiment before. It's like spending as much money to fight World War II, except there's no enemy." We're not spending it on defense, and it's not clear who will buy what. So that 
with that, I, you know, I'm really tempted to just set the scene and, and, and level set for all of us, right? That, this is kind of how the issue is presented um, and, and the way in which, you know, the, the stakes are, are presented for, for, for the U.S. economy. Um, but what I want to do um, for the, 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 this presentation is, is cover uh, uh, four areas to try to delve deeper into into look at uh, look at this uh, Biden's proposals and what it will mean. The first, uh, I'd like to look at the economic background, uh, what Biden inherited. Secondly, to look a little more at the details of what he has proposed, what are in his his two main pack packages, and um, thirdly, to look at the uh, economic principles that underlie his approach. And then finally, fourth and finally, look at the implications for the economy itself in the near, in the near future. Um, so, so first of all, just to talk about, you know, the economic context, um, Biden certainly inherited a challenging economic environment from Trump. Um, given the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown. Um, real GDP declined three and a half percent for the year in 2020. It was quite a roller coaster. It was down 31% in second quarter, up 33% in the third quarter. Um, but as of the end of 2020, just before Biden came to office, the job level, jobs were down about 10 million, uh, 6% below the uh, 20 early 2020 peak, um, and there's a uh, you know they'd run U.S. had run up a record budget deficit, um, but what was notable was that as the economy opened back up, so you know so did growth, uh, in particular in the in the uh, summertime it was very noticeable, and um, and and what we find now is that the near term outlook has improved quite a lot. And it is really hard to say that the U.S. economy right now is in a crisis, despite what Biden and his administration says. Um, the Federal Reserve Chairman Powell says the economy is at an inflection point, about to take off. Um, economist survey by the Wall Street Journal said in recent days they expect the output to grow grow by six and six point four percent in twenty twenty one and expect jobs to go up by 7 million um, in this year. It would still mean that the US would remain short of, the, of its pre-pandemic employment levels, but it would be quite a turnaround. Um, and um, the, you know, what else uh, Biden inherited was, uh, as I mentioned, Trump, under Trump, there were two relief packages in 2020 totaling more than three trillion. Um, and a big component of that were stimulus checks sent to individuals during the year. But what was notable about that was that um, this spending was largely used to build savings and pay down debt, not, in, not increase individual consumer spending. So basically, of, of the total dollars delivered, about a quarter of it that was spent by individuals. So um, it really, you know, uh, 
it, it really was the case that um, it wasn't having as big an impact in the economy as, as, uh, as thought. Um, and then finally, what Biden inherited was a very accommodative policy, monetary policy by the Federal Reserve. Um, interest rates have been held down near to zero. And um, the, the Fed during the 2020 has been um, buying, buying bonds to, again, try to make sure, sure the economy stays steady during this, this period. So I guess all in all, the question is really, you know, that, that Biden didn't necessarily inherit, you know, inherited a difficult situation. The U.S. isn't out of the woods but not really what you could call a, a, you know, a, a crisis. Um, so, so Biden comes into the White House uh, in January and starts pushing uh, for his proposals. The first one was, as Rob mentioned, the American Rescue Plan. That got signed into law in March, 2021. It was done um, entirely through Democratic Party support and um, hardly any Republican party support. Um, the, uh, the main component of it was a, a check for $1,400 to everyone earning up to $75,000 a year. Um, it scaled down after that. Um, and there was you know, more for families and things like that. Um, and, uh, but the thing is, is that if you look at surveys done on this set, find the same thing that uh, I, I just mentioned a minute ago about the earlier stimulus uh, packages, which is that most people are not planning to spend that money. They're more likely to um, save it. Um, there's also um, in, the, in the package, uh, a, a, an amount for um, a child tax credit um, and basically giving people money uh, to the extent that they have kids. Um, and what's some potentially significant about that is that it, it, it removed any requirement for work related to that. Um, but I think the thing is, is it's important to recognize, I think, that this is not necessarily like revolutionary. The, the dollar amount is very high, especially coming after the amounts that Trump had, had brought in the year before. But, you know, in concept, I mean, more than two thirds uh, of the items followed what Trump had introduced. Um, this child tax credit was not a huge component of it in terms of the total package. Um, and, um, and I think it's important, you know, when you think about the kind of ideological message about big government being back, that, you know, federal support to individuals has, you know, the so-called safety net, that has been in place, you know, started, you know, from Reagan through to Clinton to, to today, it's not like it's disappeared. Um, and furthermore, what kind of muddies the picture politically is, is that Trump was, was actually calling for a bigger uh, check to go out to people. And a number of leading Republicans were also supporting the concept of, of money to children and families. So it's not a clear club, cut political thing. Um, in terms of the, the, the latest 
uh, initiative, the American Jobs Plan, as I mentioned, also referred to as their infrastructure bill. That was just recommended uh, less than two weeks ago. Uh, and um, and that's, that is in some ways more significant. It's 2.3 trillion. It's meant to uh, be spent over eight years. Um, and, um, and it covers a, a lot of areas. Um, what's some of the biggest are like transportation at over 600 billion, 300 billion on manufacturing, nearly uh, 200 billion on research and development, things like this. Um, and as I mentioned, it, it's combined with ta increasing taxes on corporations, higher rate. Um, but there have been a number of issues raised with this um, package, which I think are legitimate questions, valid ones to consider. Um, the first is how you know you can label this infrastructure. Uh, some would, depending on how you how narrowly or widely you define infrastructure, it's probably somewhere between seven and twenty five percent of of the whole thing is what might be called infrastructure. Um, about twenty percent or more is on long-term care for the elderly. It's one of the biggest ch single chunks. And it's it kind of you know defies normal definition to say that that's infrastructure. It has a number of, you know, it's a very important, it has a number of subsidies for green energy programs, including electric vehicles. Um, it has just generally a lot of corporate welfare type programs supporting uh, different companies. Um, and um, it, it also has about half a trillion of it, you know, uh, about a quarter of it is about for the administration to distribute, distribute to state and local governments, including schools. Um, and, and generally it provides a lot of um, discretion for the central government to decide where to send money um, and control that. Which, which in the U.S. context, being a federal government and a, um, having a lot of state autonomy, um, is 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 a bit different. Um, the other questions raised is really around: will the will the high corporate taxes hurt U.S. competitiveness, and the fact that these taxes are unlikely to cover the cost? Um, so that's the plan. The plans what. Biden's proposing, um, what exactly does this mean in, you know, in economic terms? Um, I think, um, I think it's really too simplistic to just simply say, you know, big government's back and things like this. As I mentioned, you know, government spending is, has been maintained uh, over, over different types of governments and ideologies for, for decades. Um, the, um, I think, uh, and, and I also think it's interesting that it's not so much that the economic basis is, is being spelt out, articulated clearly, it's much more implicit. Um, but to kind of talk about these uh, principles, um, I'm gonna steal from uh, Greg Ipp, who's a writer for the Wall Street Journal, a uh, very perceptive guy. Um, and he identified five um, principles. And I think it's a pretty good, pretty good summary from my reading as well. And contrasts 
you know, the old view with the new view uh, of what we're seeing. Um, so the first of the five is around, is having a different conception of the constraints on growth. Basically, um, the old view is portrayed as being that more supply oriented, that there's constraints on supply and that will hold back growth. Um, and that you don't really necessarily, you know, shouldn't be using monetary and fiscal policy on a day-to-day -day basis to increase growth, where the new view is much more demand oriented. It's much more that there is a significant lack of demand in the economy. So it's it's Keynesian in that regard, you know, um, but what's different is that there's a feeling that there's chronic lack of demand that exists almost all the time. And as one of the economics professors behind these views, uh, J.W. Mason said, uh, depression economics applies basically all of the time. And so there is, therefore it's justified to spend a lot of money to increase demand in the economy. The second principle that's identified is that um, has to do with inflation. In particular, the old view would have been that, you know, you've got to be careful with fiscal policy because if it pushes unemployment down too low, it's going to trigger higher inflation, which then requires higher interest rates to combat and that, that, that reduces um, investment. Um, but according to the new view, um, unemployment should be pushed as low as they can because there is no correlation between low unemployment and inflation. And even if it is, it's probably a wor worthy trade-off to lower unemployment. Um, the third view, uh, third principle here as, is um, to do with debt and deficits. The old view would be that generally you want to avoid debt, um, you know, that it crowds out investment and uh, really should be um, avoided except for recessions. Um, but the new view behind the sort of Biden people is that, um, you know, savings is, are plentiful, um, interest rates are low, uh, deficits don't really matter, that um, they can be financed. And in fact, in a way, it's they're very necessary. And here, um, they're supported by what you, you some of you may have heard of, the so-called modern monetary theory, um, you know, and which is a pretty extreme in, in uh, saying that deficits, you know, never, never lead to higher interest rates. Um, the fourth principle uh, they've identified, Greg Gip identifies, is around social programs. The old view being that you know you've got that money is scarce. Um, government spending on social programs should be targeted, and in particular, it should be tied to work. We should be encouraging work. The new view says, well, no, um, spending is a per se is a good thing. Um, we should care about everyone. Um, 
even if, and, and we shouldn't necessarily tie it to work, you know, tie it to work, that's prejudices against, discriminates against those who give or caregivers or otherwise don't want to work. Um, and, and it is kind of a, a, a precursor uh, maybe to uh, this idea of a universal basic income coming in. Fifth and finally, in terms of, of principles uh, has to do with um, markets and incentives um, and in particular around tax rates. Um, so the old view would be high taxes are a problem. It's gonna lessen investment and things like um, higher minimum wages are gonna be a distort the labor market. The new view is it basically tax rates have little impact at all on investment and higher minimum wages have no real impact on employment levels. So we can raise taxes as much as we want, we can increase the minimum wage and uh, leave it at there. Now, I, the great, what Greg Ip did simplifies, I've simplified even more to probably the point I've caricatured uh, uh, the views, but, but I, do, I think in a way, there is something to this in that um, there is a way in which the old view is uh, a straw man and not really um, what it was. And so the new views can be presented as, as somehow uh, fresh and different. Um, and, uh, and probably the truth to all these is, is, is much more complicated, really, that it's not as, you know, so it's easy to knock down like, something, you know, just historically to show that there have been periods where there's low unemployment and low inflation, and um, it seems to knock down the straw man. But, you know, in terms of what do we make of these, these economic themes, um, I'd say, first of all, it looks as if the Biden administration is really extrapolating from recent experience, right? So we have seen in recent years um, unemployment low without unleashing inflation. We've seen government debt rising. Of course, at the same time, interest rates are falling. Um, and what it seems pretty clear from the interviews with administration people that they felt that there was a risk of doing too little or too much, but they'd rather do too much. Um, and um, and, and, uh, and so, you know, the question though, is have they learned the right lesson um, from the 2008, 2009 crisis in response, which they believe, they believe strongly was not a, a robust enough response. Um, and, uh, and are they really just basing it on, um, you know, recent as in the past, you know, 10 to 20 years experience uh, from that. Um, I think as well, you know, the, there's a big question mark over these principles has to do with the limitations. Are there limitations on these? Because they don't see the economists who are in favor of this new approach don't seem to articulate any limiting principles, right? So if they say it's three trillion in stimulus is good, you know, why isn't it six trillion, nine trillion more, right? If they, they'll argue for a $15 minimum wage, well, if that's the case, why not 30, sorry, 
13 sorry 15 dollar minimum wage why not a 30 dollar minimum wage or 100 dollar minimum wage so it's um there's there's definitely something lacking there um also i think it's just important to recognize in all this is that you know you do have to search around to find um a statement around these principles and you have to kind of read between the lines and things like that and really when it comes to biden and so-called bidenomics it really is is really presented much more as a political movement than economic thought um basically the motivation is much more around inequality and climate change people hurt by the pandemic rather than um uh clearly articulated um principles so finally to wrap up I want to look at what are the potential implications for the US economy. Um, so first of all, we can talk about it maybe in more short term or cyclical terms. Um, and so I think what we've got right now are the conditions for a short term boom. Um, the As I mentioned, the economy is already been in a process of recovering. The biggest obstacle has been COVID. Vaccinations are happening pretty quickly. Um, and um, this increase in spending from both Trump in 2020 and now Biden in 2021 is definitely going to you know, turbocharge that. Um, even though much of the Biden spending won't come into play until next year or after, I think it'll definitely support um, and the Federal Reserve is committed to, you know, low, low interest rates. So I think the odds of very strong growth in this year and into next year is pretty high. Um, I think some of the problems that might emerge will probably take some time to, to do so. For example, it's probably unlikely that inflation would jump up dramatically in the next few months. Um, but to caution on that a few things. So first of all, got to bear in mind that we're, we're still talking about any rapid growth would just be bringing the US back to where it was pre-COVID. It's, it's still going to take some time, really probably till sometime next year to get up to pre-COVID levels. Now, psychologically, it'll be quite important. It'll feel very good, um, aside from greater you know freedom to get out and about. I mean, um, but um but it's important to bear that in mind that it's it's it, from, from the economy point of view it's still going to be just getting back to where it was but i also agree with those who say this really is an experiment and you know to pile on so much spending uh right at the start of a cyclical upturn um and i do think we'll see some problems emerge and maybe not for a year or two, but but I think there's a good chance one way or another they're going to um, because it's just exceeding the uh, the supply capacity in the economy. Um, and and even if you know it doesn't mean necessarily mean inflation or the a big increase in interest rates, but you know for example um, we could see instead of inflation expressing itself 
through consumer prices, we might see more asset price inflation like we've seen, like with the stock market going up or real estate. Um, we could see some problems in the bond markets as the US tries, you know, continues to sell its debt globally. Um, but I think the important point here from the you know, management of cyc the cyclical economy is, is that the US is going to be left very exposed as a result of all this upfront spending. Um, basically, the next downturn comes, there really won't be these traditional fiscal and monetary mechanisms ready to hand to be able to use. If you've already got interest rates at a really low rate, if you already have uh, if you've got really high spending in debt, you're not going to be able to, to use those at the next time. So that, um, again, maybe not immediately, but in the short to midterm, um, there's, it's quite risky for the U.S., I'd say. But I'd also want to look at the implications, not just from the short-term cyclical perspective, but more of a medium-term and structural point of view. And in a way, this is the perspective that probably gets less attention um, in the in the media. Um, now, and we are what I'm talking about here is really the need uh, to support the productive economy um, to, uh, in particular, rationalize unproductive enterprises, uh, creating a, a better foundation and boosting productivity. Um, and first of all, I would say that it's important to note that the COVID lockdown has contributed that to that to a degree, right? Aside from government, uh, you know, in, in a way, in spite of government propping up things, we have seen weaker firms go to the wall. Um, and we've also seen uh, uh, the greater use of technology to replace workers. And, um, and, and aside from, you know, the the whole work from home technology, other technology usages. So, you know, so that already helps. Um, I'd also note that, um, that under the Trump administration, there, uh, there was a move to lower taxes and reduce regulations. And I do think that that helped. I think that contributed to why unemployment was quite low under, under Trump. And, and we saw uh, annual growth pre-COVID at pretty decent levels. And I think that Biden reversing the, that approach is, is going to hurt the economy in the, mid, in the midterm. That said, I, I think the Trump approach was very narrow. I, don't, I think the US does need to do more to support productive industry. And I think that does include, can include government spending and borrowing. Um, you know, in today's environment, as a starting point, why wouldn't you take advantage of low interest rates? You know, why wouldn't you um, seek to have longer term investments that pay off over time? Um, and if government spending truly supported growth, um, that growth would um, bring down debt and it would be a kind of a virtuous cycle. And also, you um, the US infrastructure does need to be repaired um, and improvements in infrastructure would assist overall productivity. I agree with the Biden acolytes when it comes to that. 
Um, that said, I do think the Biden approach, though, so that might, you know, listening to that, you might think I'm supportive of the Biden infrastructure bill, but I'm not. I think it's off the mark. Uh, the first thing I'd say is um, I think it's, as I mentioned before, I think there's too little spent on what truly can be called infrastructure and basic science and R&D. A lot of the stuff that is in there related to infrastructure is pretty unimaginative, like a lot of billions spent on Amtrak rather than reimagining the rail system. Uh, well, a bigger problem is um, the new, these um, green um, subsidies for uncompetitive energy. It, it's kind of like sneaking in the Green New Deal or part of it um, without calling that. Um, you know, they're, for example, they're, they're calling on like to uh, spend over 200 billion on retrofitting homes and buildings to make them more energy efficient. Um, studies have shown that, you know, the investment is gonna cost more than the energy savings. There's also, you know, uh, other, uh, other measures being say, uh, proposed to, under the name of being more energy efficient, which looks like they won't be. Um, in particular, uh, a lot of the spending is, is geared toward ending fossil fuels and um, promoting um, renewables like wind and solar. But you know, already right now, natural gas and coal make over, up over half of electricity generation. In a, and um, you, know, you can't, as Biden's trying to do, is just declare them um, and, and uh, to, to end them, banish them. And there's really no support in his proposals for uh, uh, an energy type like nuclear, um, which would be much more practical and better for the environment. And a lot of the other things, it seems like it's um, very much uh, assisting uh, you know, investors in, in, in green energy with tax credits. I mean, basically, if these programs are to be competitive, they need to be competitive on their own right rather than propped up with subsidies. And then I also agree with the critics that it looks like it's Biden's creating a pretty big bureaucracy um, that it was not necessarily be helpful. So all in all, I would say that when it comes to this all important midterm investment that Biden's approach is a wasted opportunity. Um, I think after this, it's gonna be very hard for them to spend more money, uh, much more money on areas that could really assist productive industry. And also it looks like, you know, there really won't be scope to raise taxes much further um, that would support that kind of spending. So again, I'd say a wasted opportunity. So with that, um, I'll uh, wrap up and let me pass it back, back to Rob to kick off the discussion. Okay, thank you very much, Jamie. That was uh, very comprehensive. Thank you very much indeed. Um, now, if you want to get involved in the discussion, if you're, uh, uh, you're unfamiliar with Zoom, if you look down at the, um, uh, sorry, I'll take Jamie off spotlight. There we go. Um, the, um, if you want to get involved in the discussion, then uh, look out for the participants button uh, and then there's a button within that box called raise hand. If you want to uh, let me know that you'd like to have a to, to speak uh, on, I believe on Max, it's, it's under reactions. 
uh, and you'll find the raise hand button there as well. So please do uh, stick your hand up and uh, tell, tell us what you think or ask just basic questions about what's going on in America at the moment. Um, I see Chrissy Daz is already lined up. So if you could unmute and uh, fire away. Hi. Um, yes. Um, quite a big question, really, but um, a lot of uh, new thinking around uh, economics, whether it's MMT or um, some of the ideas about us going toward a form of feudalism, rentier capitalism, surveillance capitalism, various things um, that people seem to be anticipating or even suggesting are already happening. Um, uh, they all seem to be premised upon a, an idea that we are Irre irrevocably heading away from uh, from free markets. So really what I wanted to ask is, within any of these policies or within anything that might well um, come to pass in the near future in the American economy, what is the prospect for new firms and increased marketplace competition? Brilliant, okay, uh, next up is Para, could you unmute? Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Oh, sorry. I was trying to unmute somebody else. Uh, thanks, Jamie. That was very interesting and very informative. Um, a lot of the... Um, uh, actually, hold on, hang on a minute. Um, a lot of the um, stuff that uh, we read here um, uh, talks about how transformative the whole all these packages are going to be uh, uh, and how great it is. And um, from what you've just said, um, I guess I am uh, thinking that actually at the end of the day, the first package obviously is uh, fairly short termism in the sense that a lot of the uh, uh, packages that they're giving to people and everything else has, has got an end date. Um, and certainly the other proposals, uh, you know, as you pointed out, in terms of the infrastructure, uh, very low percentage uh, going towards infra real infrastructure changes, uh, that it's actually not transformative in the way it's being described here and compared to whether it's uh, uh, Johnson, Lyndon Johnson or Roosevelt, that's not really that. And that probably the reason why everybody is so into it is because it's coming at on the back of Trump, i.e. they've seen Trump go. And uh, there's also some discussion about how this is a dent into the populism. And it's probably fair to say that the majority of Americans support uh, all this, these proposals, although uh, it's probably far-fetched to say that it's a dent into the divisions that already, the cultural divide that already exists. So it's more really for you to, uh, you know, um, make a comment uh, on this uh, kind of stuff that we read here. Uh, quick question on China, um, uh, how this comes um, uh, into play, if you like, uh, given that, yes, there's no uh, enemy in terms of a war enemy, but certainly America does see China as its enemy. And in that sense, the economy discussion and what it proposes to do in terms of productive industries will, I would have thought, will have some bearing to wanting to be independent of China. So that's a question. Thank you. 
Um, okay, brilliant. Thank you very much, um, uh, Peter. Thanks. Harris uh, uh, sort of asked my first question about uh, China. I think it's a general uh, wide issue about globalization. How does Biden see that? Another question is, he says he wants to encourage union jobs and to talk about the minimum wage, which is fine. On the one hand, it seems sort of American workers have a lot less, less protection than European ones. On the other hand, we see it as of union shops and uh, lack of uh, flexibility as a result of it. How do you see um, the market going? You know, how um, do unions and things like that, that come in? Is there a danger that uh, when you've got lots of stimulus that you will end up with a high inflationary uh, um, uh, consequences if the market isn't that flexible? Indeed, how flexible is the market? Okay, great. Uh, thanks very much, Peter. Um, and John, if you could unmute yourself. Oh. Yeah, great. sorry. Uh, it's just um, questions already being asked. Um, is there a China dimension? Uh, where does onshoring fit with this? So, um, yet again, same question. Okay, right. Thanks very much. Uh, Giovanna. Uh, if you, oh, if, yes, go ahead. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, well, uh, Jeremy, uh, absolutely fantastic presentation. I, uh, I really, uh, I think it's very, very good, very detailed. I totally agree with what you're saying in general. My, uh, where I kind of uh, got a bit lost uh, is how you define big economics, because you said it's a political movement is more a political movement rather than an economic theory. And at the same time, you did stress that there is something absolutely unique about what's going on in the United States. But I've, really, I've, I've been trying to understand, you know, $10 trillion added to the deficit in, in two years. I mean, this is absolutely incredible. So I've been trying to understand it from, you know, from the UK. And what I've been reading is that there is a theory, there, is, there are thinkers within the, uh, the Democratic Party. So a lot of people mentioned the book by Stephanie Kelton, who is a professor of economics at the State University of New York. And she had written a book called The Deficit Myth, and, uh, that is the modern monetary theory. So she's seen as one of the theorists of the, of the modern uh, monetary theorist. And, uh, and a lot of people on the right are actually trying to develop a critique of her, uh, of her uh, book because it's very influential among uh, the um, some people are saying that this theory and what Stephanie Kelton is doing, it's basically a nirvana for the social justice warriors uh, within the, uh, the democratic uh, movement. And, 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 and what they're saying is that, so, so they're, they're really trying to put more emphasis on trying to understand uh, this, uh, this theory, which is not Keynesianism. You know, they, uh, some people on the right, some people uh, refer to the real uh, key thinker behind it, uh, George Friedrich Knapp with his state theory of money. And so I think that uh, a person, I think it would be important to also contribute to a critique of this theory, because it really, and because it is very influential here as well in Europe, 
you know, and I'm trying to understand it because I cannot understand how they can really believe they can sort out all the problems in the economy by printing all this money and the consequences that this has on, on people's lives. And this belief that if you print all this money, we're getting out of the problems. So I just wonder if you could say more about, is there a critique, uh, are you, what do you think about this thinking from the right about the influence of this new monetary theory uh, from the part of uh, the right? Okay, thank you very much. Now, I've got, I've got apologies to uh, James and Daniel who are itch, no, chomping at the bit to get in, but I've also got some questions on, on the chat as well. And I want to give Jamie some prospect of answering all, all the stuff that's been thrown at him. Pete Gill in the chat's asked about Net zero, um, we've got that in the UK. It's a big uh, issue over here. Uh, how does that agenda manifest itself in the USA? Uh, and also about um, what basis and evidence there are for these, in quotes, old and new economic theories. And um, maybe there's a little bit of personal uh, motivation here. Is it a good time to buy gold? Anyway, so uh, Jamie, uh, uh, Pick up on whatever you want. I think there's a lot there for you to go through. Yeah, yeah, thanks everyone. Um, so, um, where do we start? Um, so there were a few questions around um, what does this mean kind of for free markets and the whole kind of populism um, discussion. Um, I do think, so first of all, I, I think in terms of the ideology, you just really don't hear that much in the way of forthright defenses of more of a free market point of view. And that in some ways, as I was trying to explain, I think that that's more just getting around to um, reality that there hasn't been a, you know, uh, either a, a big reduction in state spending or, or you know, the willingness to let a lot of companies go to the wall and things like that. You do, and I think that there is post-Trump, there has been this idea on the Republican side that they need, if they're gonna to appeal to workers, they gotta have, you know, they have to be willing to spend money and support support them. So that's kind of led to, to this where it's, um, you know, some of the criticisms are less about the principle of government spending, but more how it's being done and things like that, um, and and so there is some 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 overlap there. But I mean, I think there is also a misunderstanding. I mean, if you take just the populist kind of impulse, I mean, there was much more of that feeling was around we want to we want to get out of our homes, we want to get back to work, we want we want to be able to do our jobs, we want to. Uh, we wanted small businesses to, you know, be open. Was much more, you know, was much more of a urgency to that, passion to that, than there was support for the extra spending. The extra spending was like, yeah, it's okay, you know, and I'll save it for when I, because who knows where things are going to go. So I'll just save that money. But you know, what I really want is that. So there is to get back to my life, and so. You know, so there isn't, I don't think that this, the Biden proposals, which in a lot of ways follow Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, I don't think really meets the kind of populist moment. That said, I don't think that necessarily the U.S. is a place where 
um, marketplace competition has been kind of eroded or things like that. I mean, there's obviously things that distort that, but I mean, just to take an example from the pandemic and look at, um, you know, the vaccine production, right? I mean, it's clearly there's, for all of its potential, you know, criticisms you can make of the pharmaceutical industry, there's something going right when they can turn that around pretty quickly, including a company like Moderna, which was not, is not a big pharma company, right? And they, there's a, you know, quite a big, uh, biotech industry, pretty dynamic industry in the US. Um, so there are pockets of areas where there is, it's pretty, there are new firms and it's pretty dynamic. Um, secondly, in terms of the, um, you know, Giovanna, uh, nice to see you Giovanna, haven't seen you in a while. Uh, the, uh, it's uh, in terms of the, you know, the kind of, um, ideology around this and the ideas. I was just trying to get the balance right. I think we probably will hear more people that um, will be kind of articulating this, you know, the Biden approach or approaches sympathetic to Biden that uh, articulate this more. I just wanted to be careful and not try to oversell it uh, in terms of, you know, that it's that it's very clear that there's a uh, you know, two or three people that you could go to and they'll give you exactly what's what's going on behind Biden. I mean, there have been some interviews recently um, with some of his advisors trying to get them to explain more of the thinking behind their approach. Um, but I think the approach that I quoted from Greg Ip is a pretty decent, you know, decent overview. Um, on, on modern monetary theory, I will confess that I have not read the Stephanie Kelton book and I can't claim to be an, an expert on that. I do know there are people who say that it's too simplistic to sort of just call it something that's deficits don't matter at all and there are no limits. Um, but it does seem like you mentioned, Giovanna, there's kind of a fairy tale kind of quality to it of like, there are no problems anymore. We can spend everything we want to spend. And uh, if we're a sovereign nation that prints our own money, and especially being the U.S. in the economy, you know, in the world economy, we can we can do do this. Um, I guess another way of looking at this is when you say there are no limits, then you're pretty much like going to be testing those limits. So we're going to see how far this really this really can go. Um, Final point I'll just mention here is around um, is around China and uh, and I think it's there. There are a lot of different dimensions to it, um, but just to say that when I think when Biden first emerged as a candidate, um, I, I heard, especially outside of the U.S., I heard a lot of, well, you know. Trump is an unnecessarily antagonistic. It's bad for the world economy. Last thing you want, or, or world politics. Last thing you want, this guy, bull in a china shop. You, you know, no pun intended. You know, go knocking everything over. And when Biden comes, it's going to be fine. You know, it's going to back to normality. And the thing is, is though, is that Biden actually and his people are actually pretty antagonistic toward China as a stance. Also, I mean, they were on the campaign trail. You kind of wondered whether that was just like they were afraid to be outflanked by Trump on it. But, um, you know, and, and also the first meeting, which you, you, you guys may have seen, you know, in the news, 
the first diplomatic meeting, the China representative was pretty assertive. Um, and, got, you know, they pretty much got off to a pretty, pretty frosty relationship. There is also, you know, some, nothing's been introduced, but there is talk of, of like continuing, um, you know, trade, trade restrictions and, you know, concern, continued concerns around things like intellectual property, things like that. And then the broader picture, you know, is, is around, you know, the competitiveness, you know, between the two, two economies. And again, and there, you know, that goes to my more fundamental points I was talking about, which is that if you're not, if the U.S. is not uh, really gearing up for something more transformative, as, as Para says, then it's, it's obviously going to, it's going to decline relative to China in the near, in the near future. Um, and so it's not uh, near to medium future. So it's, it's not going to really, this approach is not going to help them relative to, to China. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to go straight out again. So um, James. Um... Yeah. Can you uh, hear me? Hi. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a quick one, really, Jamie. I wondered if you could say something about um, his relations and his future relations with big tech. Seems to me that's very important in America. Uh, it's getting a lot of hostility, still very powerful. Um, and, you know, is he going to raid their coffers? Uh, how does he see it? And um, underneath all of that is, you know, how good is the American semiconductor industry? compared with Samsung or, or Taiwan semiconductors. Um, you know, it's all very well to have uh, Facebook, but not so great if you don't have the IT underneath it all. And they're weak in 5G and many other things. You need to unmute, Rob. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> Daniel. Uh, yeah, I wanted to say something very briefly about China to carry on from what Jamie said and then ask you a very brief question. So in relation to China, I was fortunate enough to write an article recently where I spoke to several China experts. And I was really struck in the course of this uh, writing the article. I hadn't really realized how strong it was, but the, the so-called China hawks in the Biden administration are really, really to the fore. So making very, very serious criticisms against China. So for example, Anthony Blinken, the new US Secretary of State, on his first day in office, his first statement, accused China of committing uh, genocide against the Uyghur Muslims in China. And the point these experts made is that China can handle criticism in relation to its economy. So if the US talks about Chinese currency manipulation or China subsidizing steel or whatever it may be, then you know, China, China will go along with it and it can handle that. But once the US starts criticizing what China views as its own uh, right to self-determination, so anything in relation to Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, or the Muslims, uh, indigenous Muslims in China, China is likely to react very, very strongly against that. So, I mean, you could argue the moral rights and wrongs of that, but I think the, if the Biden administration does carry on along those lines of criticizing on those kinds of issues, although they're not economic issues, they could lead to 
uh, great problems in the US-China economic relationship. Uh, just very quickly, two questions. One is, even if there's not a huge takeoff of inflation, Jamie, do you think that given the huge stock of debt that's being built up, the huge volume of debt, could even a little inflation lead to some kind of panic uh, in US markets, in the US administration? It, you know, maybe it doesn't take that much. And my other question is, is there, and I'm not suggesting this in a positive way, but do you think there's scope to restructure the American economy along green lines, so the green technology and so on, which I wouldn't be as positive. I suspect you wouldn't be as positive either, but is there scope for that kind of uh, restructuring to, to go ahead? Right, okay. Um, Hillary, next. Thank you. Um, so following on from Daniel to some extent, it, uh, in the, this issue of the huge amount of debt that exists and is being issued. So it might be a deaf question, but who's buying all that debt? Is it China? Um, is it a kind of um, fusing of kind of fiscal and monetary policy uh, going on? Because it just seems to me it's, it, it's, it's difficult to understand, you know, where, where all that is going. And then the second question was just just on this idea that it, it's political, not economic, this Bidenomics. I mean, isn't it the case that, that all this kind of fiscal easing just creates lots of money, which creates demand, but it's not demand for products, it's demand for assets, and it just pushes up asset values. And that kind of makes the rich richer uh, and in, increases um, inequality. Um, so how does that kind of fit with a political um, thrust to this? Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, uh, Richard. Cheers. Thanks, Rob. Um, and thanks, James. Um, the, these questions might not be very coherent, but I'm just thinking them through as, as, uh, as I listen to, uh, to what's being said. The one question I have is, I mean, you're talking about the, the relationship between the politics and the economics of it all, is to what extent, um, this might be speculative, but to what extent, you know, I, I'm increasingly seeing that the Western governments are looking at China and thinking, we'd like a bit of that, please. And that the um, experience of, of the uh, uh, obedience, as it were, to lockdowns mean that they feel that they can control things more easily. The state can control things more easily than they ever, ever realised before. And yet at the same time, in the very peculiar situation in the United States is, of course, is you, you can easily get a lot of pushback from uh, from the states themselves. And I'm hearing this on, on the sort of perhaps on the more libertarian or economics uh, side of things is that, you know, that there are genuinely states who are thinking, I don't want, want to be part of this big federal spending program. And Biden's words to Texas, uh, Texan governor about, oh, if you open up, you're going to, you know, everyone's going to be um, uh, dead within two weeks. And that's not happened. Is that, you know, from a popular point of view, from the working class point of view, surely they must be thinking, what on earth is going on at the top? And, and why can't we just rely on our governors? So do you see any way, do you see any kind of sort of push-pull uh, tension between, between those two things? Great, okay. Uh, film on. Great, thanks. Uh, thanks very much, Jamie, that was great. And uh, I mean, I, I agree with your thesis overall um well in, in detail really i mean a lot more continuity uh in so-called bionomics uh rather than change um and also agree your closing comments which is that 
the underlying state of uh, the American economy is is uh, weaker than is generally perceived, and that what we've seen so far from so-called binomics is unlikely to change that. I mean, I, if we had longer time to discuss it, I'd actually say the sort of measures which have been presented or proposed so far would actually aggravate and make the underlying problems of productivity growth and business investment actually worse because they're actually just propping up something which hasn't been working for a long time but what i wanted to focus on was the the uh, the element of continuity uh and that this is in no way a break from what's people call about the the old orthodoxy because I mean, I think actually what we've seen over the last few years, and I think this is a way of contextualizing what's going on in America, is the establishment of a of a of a new orthodoxy. Um, but it's 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 not defined by anything more than really rejecting what's failed. Um, I mean, the orthodoxy some people are calling it as the new Washington consensus, and broadly what it's saying, and you could say that Biden is just jumping on this bandwagon, is that over the course of the last four or five years the main sort of economic institutions, the main economic thinkers have recognized that things aren't working. Uh, and I'm talking about the IMF, I'm talking about the OECD, talking about the World Bank and so on. And they have increasingly, really very, ex very explicitly since about 2017, have been saying we need to have more government intervention. Now, people will know this is a complete reversal of what the IMF was supposed to be all about. The IMF was supposed to be the poster child of so-called neoliberalism, public spending cuts, austerity, and so on. But over the, it, it's, it's, it's several years ago now that the IMF and the OEC and others, and others have said, well, we were wrong after the financial crisis. We were wrong to make those recommendations. Uh, it, you know, it didn't fix anything. And I think what we're seeing, and I think I refer this right back to um, Chrissy's question at the beginning, where he talked about there seems to be a lot of new thinking um, in economics. Uh, there's another, I, I would, I, I know what you're talking about, Chrissy, but it, it's not so much new thinking or new ideas. It's just a lot of fresh labels, a lot of new labels. As you say, you mentioned some of them, um, you know, neo-feudalism, neo um, uh, you know, rentier capitalism and so on. There's a lot of ideas that we need something different, but that different, there's no content to it, just as there isn't, I don't think, any content to Biden, Biden economics, as you say, Bidenomic at the stage. It's just, a, it's a sort of a more of a defensive rejection and recognition that things haven't been working. Uh, and so it's more driven by fear than by driven by any you know, vision of a new way of doing things. You know, everyone can talk about resetting capitalism and about a, the need for a fairer, more just, more inclusive, more sustainable, more progressive form of capitalism. I mean, those are the, those are the words that come tripping out of everybody from boardrooms to the IMF and so on, and from uh, uh, the, the, the White House and I as well. But um, what it really is driven by is by a recognition which I think is important to uh, to 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 see, which is that they're they they are worried. They're more worried than they have been that things are not working. I mean, I think there's three phases to this fear. I think there was the the, the recognition three or four years after the financial crash that there wasn't going to be a recovery, and this was summed up in that discussion about secular stagnation, which took off in 2014. A real sense that. You know, we've thrown everything we can at the American economy and the globe and the Western economies general. You know, this huge amount of monetary intervention. You know, fiscal spending did not disappear, as Jamie said. You know, th th this is not something which is uh, which is new. So you've had this huge 
stimulus of monetary fiscal policy. And, you know, you get this really sluggish economy in America and, and elsewhere. So there is that recognition that, you know, this dysfunctionality of the system can't continue. Then on top of that, you had the fear really from 2016, but it was already there slightly before, of the political consequences. This may refer to some of the questions about the, the, the politics of this. This recognition that we have got a real uh, risk of social instability as expressed through the rise of populism and then the votes for Brexit, the votes for Trump and so on. So that uh, fear of what they call political polarization sometimes, or the, you actually use the phrase uh, social unrest, that it was the second thing, which if you look at the discussions going on in 2016-17 was really coming to the fore in this new orthodoxy. And I think there's a third fear, which is worth throwing in, which relates to some of these questions on China, which is a bit more specific to the United States, is I think a, a recognition that America is on the verge of being overtaken by China. You know, that those old discussions of declinism in the 1980s around Japan, um, are, are, have come back again. And I think people have seen that actually, um, uh, you know, even though we've overcome every problem, we being the United States, have overcome most of our problems in the last 20, 30 years, you know, since the end of the Cold War, we're, not, we're falling behind. I mean, J, J, James, w's, James Woodhausen's questions, you know, where is the American uh, hardware industry? You know, America is genuinely falling behind in technology. It's falling behind in innovation uh, to, to, to China. And it knows that in a few years' time, whichever way you measure it, PPP or nominal rates or whatever, uh, China is going to be a bigger economy. And that's a real, you know, that's a, a real fear for them. So I think what, uh, to conclude, I think what um, uh, 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 Daniel was talking about in terms of the, the anti-Chinese rhetoric, even though they're probably uh, not really understanding what the consequences of that could be in terms of really raising the stakes, but it does reflect that fear that they've got to do something about China. So I think all this, just to conclude, I think what Biden's been putting forward, this whole package of what seems to be very uh, 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 experimental measures and so on, is an, uh, one example of that new consensus, which is not a positive forward-looking consensus, but is one which is more broadly recognizing that things are not working. They're not working economically, they're not working politically and socially, and they're not working in terms of international, uh, international standing. And I, I think that um, uh, it creates you know, a conjuncture where there is a, a desire to do something different, but a, a, a desperate desire um, uh, uh, without any real content to what that could do in terms of renewing uh, American or Western capitalism generally. So I think that's, uh, that it, it's looking at that interaction between the two, a desire to do something, uh, but, not, but no clarity about what to do. And that can, uh, as Jamie said, you know, can have unforeseen consequences, whether it's to do with the American economy or it's to do more uh, worryingly with international relations. You've got a bucket load on your plate there, Jamie. So, um, yeah, whatever you wish to. Sure. Thanks. Uh, great comments and 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 questions. Um, yeah. So um, let me let me take them in no particular order, but um, I think the. Um, First of all, Daniel, one of the points you mentioned, you know, was around restructuring along green lines. And, and I, you know, and I, I tried to look at this to be fair, right? Because, uh, you know, so even if I didn't, like you, I think you were kind of hinting, even if you, I didn't agree necessarily with some of the changes, could they 
provide a, a boost. But the thing is, for the broader economy, it's got to it's got to be cheaper power, you know, in, and it's got to be done more efficiently for to have that effect more around the. And the problem is, is that it's it's really constrained by um, this uh, perspective around renewables. Um, and even renewables, it's like not a problem per se. I mean, you know, it'd be great if they could be developed, but the way in which it, the money's being, it's like kind of too, too much chance of um, good money thrown after bad. And then there's some other areas where it just seems like climate change ideology is just, has them thinking that it's gonna be a great, you know, great investment. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's there. It's also, um, and and James would have some union better than I do. You know, around that there's a con getting the balance right between supporting industry, but not into this kind of well, we're going to pick some uncompetitive ones and try to prop them up and things like that. And and um, and that's the concern with what you know the Biden team's doing. And in terms of, you mentioned specifically semiconductors, it's interesting, the US is really falling behind. And I thought it was interesting that Tom Cotton, who's a Republican senator, he's got a pretty high profile. He wants to be kind of more on the populist side of things. He's actually has a proposal out to support the semiconductor industry because he sees it as a national defense issue. And that, um, about national security. Um, but, you know, when you look at, I mean, the whole package, I mean, it's got a lot of pork and stuff in there that's just really like unserious. I mean, like take, for example, the 400 billion, one of the biggest items is on long-term health, uh, long-term care for the elderly. So again, not really economically, you know, about creating a new dynamism, still a very like noble aim, right? To take care of people, the US needs something like that. But you, you devote so much of the package to this, which of course is not infrastructure really. But then on top of that, um, what you, they're doing is they're defined. So this money is meant to be going to like individuals who like take care of their elderly mom, right? And you get some more, it's put an increase the benefit you get from that. But what the Biden, what Biden's doing is de now defining all these people to be employees, and immediately they are named union members of the SEIU union, and then their dues are deducted from the government before they even get the benefit payment. That improves the massive, massive increase in the SEIU's union coffers. And then they are the biggest donator to the Democratic Party. So they, the money will end up back in Biden and all the Democrats' pockets through all this stuff. And that's just not, as, aside from being corrupt, I mean, it's just not serious. Like, it just, to me, colors the whole thing, right? There's a lot of other things around this that are really payments to their friends and things like this. You can't help but when you see all this stuff. Um, in terms of um, Hillary, you, know, you asked around uh, how does this like really help you know people, uh, and I agree that that you know even when you look at this from a kind of 
more popular or look at what does it mean for your, you know, your average person? Um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, all of this could just lead to inflated assets, which tends to, you know, benefit the people who own stock shares or, you know, to uh, other things, um, which is, which is, is fair enough. I mean, I would say that the way in which the relief payments are structured, it, is, it do, will go, it does go mostly to lower paid people. And it is pretty much that way. It's just that kind of a, a band-aid. It doesn't really help them. And what seems to be, be which I really mind is the movement towards the universal basal, basic income is it really is moving away from this notion of, uh, you know, that, that we ought to be creating jobs. It's, it's very kind of the whole underneath a lot of it is a really defeatism. Like, you know, best we can do, there's going to be a lot of economic change. You know, we're going to be throwing people out of all these old fossil fuel industry, you know, like, we want to keep social stability. Let's just throw cash at them. And um, I think that's kind of insulting. It's interesting that a lot of these UBI ideas come from the tech industry. Um, Andrew Yang, who was a candidate for president, who's now likely to be the next mayor of the New York, he's at least ahead in the polls. He's a big advocate for it. It's very much from that perspective. And back to your point, James, about Biden and big tech. Big tech is a is a huge supporter of the Democratic Party, um, and uh, and right now, the sectors of the U.S. economy mostly support the the, the sort of newer ones support Biden and and the, and the Democrats. Um, on some of the international things, finally, uh, Hillary, you asked about the U.S. debt. Actually, two thirds of the debt is is owned domestically through uh, US banks, the Federal Reserve, the um, uh, mutual funds, uh, pension funds, all that. One third is held by international and Japan and China are the two biggest buyers of the debt. Um, so, and, but the, the international part is critical, right? You know, when they're kind of struggling, if they're struggling, it's always been the case that the US has had to be careful. And it, it could be the way in which, which things um, express themselves, which, which leads me, I guess, to the last point, which is just is around that a lot of these problems the U.S. are facing might express themselves more in the international realm. It could be around, you know, you know a, a decline in, in foreigners buying U.S. debt, but it also could be, you know, global stock market, could be trade conflict, it could be a lot of different ways in which it could express itself. I guess the thing I feel, you know, you look at it, um, you know, and Daniel, you mentioned about inflation. I, yeah, you could definitely see a scenario where even if inflation didn't take off, as long as it exceeded what was being predicted, there'd be all these questions around why isn't the Fed going to raise rates or that it's inevitable that the Fed will raise rates. So you could easily see like a stock market big drop as a result of all that discussion and panic, even before like, you know, interest rates actually were raised. But um, I guess the thing I feel is, is just, you know, having watched this over the years is it's very hard to kind of predict the form and the timing of how these crises emerge. It's very, you know, um, and 
I guess it's kind of a cop out maybe, but it's kind of like, you know, it's likely to express itself one way or another. And, but you also can't rule out the possibility, right, of just something like a one to two year kind of boost, temporary boost to the economy, and then a, a, a sort of bog standard downturn without there being, you know, a crash or a huge inflation risk, right, which would still be pretty problematic for the US, um, you know, given all we were just talking about, you know, in terms of its international standing. If, if, if you spent all of this money like Biden's doing, and it really didn't have much of an impact beyond a year or two, like even that in itself would be, you know, a big problem for the US. Hi, Jamie, I'll, I'll keep it brief because we're low on time. Um, I wanted to pick up on the pork issue, um, pork being American for skimming off the top uh, and funding your friends and so on. Um, and you've alluded to the federal um, state issue in the US. How much inefficiency uh, compared to the UK, for instance, do you see in these kind of huge stimulus packages where, you know, essentially the investment will be lost or squandered because of the federal state structure? And secondly, do you have any reflections on the nature? I think James Woodhausen talked about uh, the innovation issue, as did Phil Mullen, on where there is intelligent spending going on in R&D, whether it's in DARPA or the space industries or in other kind of Mariana Mazzucato ways of um, you know, being an entrepreneurial state. Okay, Paul. Yeah, um, firstly, can, we, can I make a request that we rename this to the Political Economy Forum rather than just the Economy Forum? But that, that's not my, uh, my main point. I mean, this is just a, a kind of background thing that's come out of this, that come out, I think, American declinism was mentioned. It just occurred to me that, you know, historically in the past, you know, when you, capitalism had kind of been progressive, you know, whether it had been uh, the Industrial Revolution, it was kind of underpinned by a kind of an ideology of, uh, I don't know, the Protestant work ethic or whatever. Then it was replaced to get eventually by, uh, say, America, um, sort of being the hegemonic uh, ideological um, uh, company, uh, sorry, country organisation. But the point is, each of those were point underpinned by some kind of positive ideology. Yes, you went through fascism and the end of colonialism, all that kind of stuff. It just occurred to me a difference now is the the only potential uh, economic power, whatever that exists, is likely to be China, and that almost doesn't have an ideology. If you see what I mean, so th that's almost the point I was trying to make. Is it, is there something different now? Because we are largely, you know, from James's discussion, talking about uh, some form of end of the, not quite the end of the American empire, but it's like, you know, it's, it's almost like this was like the 1870s and you were talking about the end of uh, the, the um, British empire, the, you know, Britain being the leadership of the world. It just occurred to me that I don't see anything positive necessarily in terms of ideology as a positive thing in terms of freedom or whatever with China. And I just wondered if that is a real destabilizing um, possibility. 
not, not expressed that very well, but anyway, I thought I'd chuck it in at the end anyway. You're muted. Unmute, Rob. Jamie, if you would like to respond to any of that uh, or all of that yeah. and just basically sum up the discussion that would Sure. So, um, so first of all, Paul, thanks for that. Um, yeah, you raise good questions. I think we need to look at that more closely. I think you're right. There, despite China's growth, it's not like it's been a um, s something that's ideologically been grabbed onto by people globally and saying, you know, we must copy China. I mean, maybe in more of the emerging markets. But my understanding is like in the West, you know, there isn't necessarily, aside from the basic point about that they're devoting a lot of resources directed from the central government, and we need to do something like that too, don't we? But, um, and, uh, and, and honestly, I don't really know enough about China to be able to talk about, you know, potential weak points, right? I mean, it's clear the pattern about relative growth, um, but is there, are there anything that, I know we've talked about China before in the group, but I mean, um, you know, are there any <clears throat> pitfalls that they could potentially get have? Um, in terms of your question, Rob, about the pandemic, um, so vaccines are are happening pretty rapidly at about over three million a day. Um, it's they're far outpacing. There has been an increase in the number of cases. It's far outpacing that, um, and. Uh, you know, if it continued on this path uh, in the exact numbers and every, you know, then the entire country would be vaccinated 100% of it uh, by the middle of June. Um, the thing is, is that, you know, there, right now it's not been approved for those 15 and under. And uh, there's about 15% of the adult population has been said that they are hesitant to get it. So uh, in terms of, but I mean, when you then think about other factors, um, it, it should be, you know, you know, uh, fingers crossed, it should be in pretty, pretty good shape come the summer. And um, the thing is, is, in terms of the economy, it's been really noticeable that the economies, the, the, the states that have opened up, like Texas and Florida, have had lower unemployment, better economies, and without necessarily, you know, the, wor the worst uh, COVID spread. And the, right now, what's really noticeable is that where the uh, increases are, are in the states, New York, New Jersey, Michigan, where um, there's actually uh, the tightest lockdown that you see. So it's kind of, the, you know, it's, it's, it's opposite of what the typical ideology is. And, um, uh, but it does seem like it's, it's coming around, which is why I didn't really emphasize it as a, as a risk or a factor, but of course it's there, right? I mean, it could come back. Um, but, you know, talking about the states, finally, you know, to your point, Nico, I think it's, I think it is, um, it is a really interesting question about the role of the states versus the, the federal central government. And, um, I think there can be inefficiencies um, and uh, through that, but on certain things. On the other hand, 
it is quite interesting, like just in the COVID discussion we're just having, right? You have these states, some of which like a Texas, I think Texas is roughly the size of the UK or something. I mean, something like that. I mean, it's kind of like you can have experiments within your own country and see how things work out and try to learn from those and in theory. Um, and so it is kind of interesting to kind of have that dynamic uh, and, you know, hopefully you'd, you'd benefit from that variety and experimentation um, within, a, within a country. Um, uh, finally, just to say thank you to everyone. Uh, thanks so much for, for listening and participating. Uh, really, really appreciate it. This whole process has really helped me kind of think through more these points. And, um, and, and, and as we've been talking a little bit about the global implications, it's all, it's all connected. Um, and um, so uh, it, we can just uh, build on it, you know, some for the future, some of the next discussions. So thanks again.